Samuel. Today we're in chapter 27. Our reading will be chapter 27 and the first two verses of chapter 28. As we continue to look at David, a man after God's own heart, and uh, depending on who you are and what your understanding is, you may be very disappointed in what you read or hear about David today. But the thing I love most about the Bible is that it presents the people or its characters in absolute reality. Uh, They are not airbrushed or backlit or painted like they used to paint senior pictures when I was a senior in high school. Those are the ugliest pictures I have ever seen. That's why you will never see my senior picture. Because they painted it. At least they painted in my big chop sideburns because I couldn't grow it naturally. I I took some charcoal one time and rubbed it in there to try to get a good heavy beard. But uh, I don't know why I said that. Let's look at 1 Samuel (laughs) chapter 27 and beginning in verse 1. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than I should escape to the land of of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, and he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath. He and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, If I found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns so that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you. So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And uh, and the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as Shur, to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. And when Achish asked, Where have you made a raid today? David would say, Against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jeremelites, against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking lest they should tell, us, tell about us and say, So David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking... He has made himself an utter stench to his people in Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand 
that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. And David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we thank you today for your word, for its starkness, its reality, how it exposes our hearts, uh, our ways of thinking, our ways of acting, our attitudes. It's just a big mirror that shows us how much we need your grace and how much we need your son, the Lord Jesus. And so we pray today that we would hear the word and benefit from the time together that your word would prosper in us as the Spirit takes us and does the work of sanctification in us. And may we be participants in that sanctification by faith. In this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So the title of the message today is Exile. Why would I choose that title? Because if you'll note in verse 1, David leaves Israel and goes into uh, the city of Gath in Philistine territory. And so you have to understand when you're reading the narrative about David that what's going on in the narrative is larger or bigger than just David himself. David represents Israel. David is the God-chosen, Yahweh-chosen, anointed king. And he decides to leave Israel and go into Philistine and into that territory and Philistines were derived from Egyptians and so what we have here in miniature is David in the exile. Um, David knows by now that he cannot trust Saul so he wouldn't go back with him but his mood sort of turns dark as he thinks to himself, one of these days I shall be destroyed by the hand of Saul. David told Abishai that Saul might go into battle literally and be swept away. Now he uses the same word to describe his own fate. David appears to waver in his faith here that God will ultimately give him the kingdom. David thought to himself literally is that David said in his heart. We see this in Psalms all the time where David carries on a conversation with himself, which is not new. Everybody does that. You talk to yourself more than you talk to any other person, unless you're just checked out or drugged up. But we have these conversations with ourselves, and David had talked himself out of I mean, the man's worn out. He's absolutely exhausted. He's absolutely hit the wall. He is burned out. Every moment of his life, he's under threat. Every moment of his life, he's running. Uh, He probably didn't get a complete night's sleep the whole time he's being chased by Saul. But David said in his heart, and it's revealing the state of our hearts are often shaped by what we say to our own hearts. Here is what David says to his heart, uh, and it undermines his confidence in God. It runs contrary both to God's word, to his promises, and even to his experience of God. David had been preserved from Saul. He, he, he walked right up on him in the cave at Agilum. Uh He was warned about him uh, and, and protected by uh, Abigail, 
And then off, uh, last week we saw in the same chapter, he, he had another opportunity of walking right into the camp and taking his spear and his water jug. And so David had seen wonderful things that God had accomplished that were miraculous, but on this day, he couldn't see any of that. Do you ever get depressed? Do you ever get down? Do you ever get burnt out? Do you ever just lose heart, get so discouraged? Sure you do. Sure you do. And David here, it, 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 we see the humanity before us. Uh, it, in reality, the uh, fallen humanity. David speaks the truth about God to his heart and restores his faith and hope where he says in Psalm 42, verse 5, this is self-talk, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why are you so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. For I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. It's a good question for us to ask ourselves. But now David is exiled. David concludes, the best thing I can do is to escape the land of the, to the land of the Philistines, and then Saul will give up searching for me anymore. In other words, David decided again to take matters into his own hand. Instead of thinking God's thoughts after him, David trusted in his own mood, his own subjective feelings, his own exhaustion, which I'm sympathetic to David here, extremely sympathetic. And so he and his men left, and they went over to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And all the action in chapters 23 and 26 up to this point in the wilderness, now all the action involving David is going to take place in Gentile territory. David is exiled. Exile was the ultimate punishment for covenant infidelity, breaking God's will and his law. But David is innocent. His exile is undeserved. The Philistines were descended from the Egyptians. Genesis 10 tells us that. So there's a, perhaps a sense in which David returning to Egypt, and when he and the king comes out of Egypt, a new Moses comes to liberate his people. In other words, David is a representative character. Just as Israel went into bondage into uh, Egypt when Joseph was there, and Jacob brought his family to keep from starving to death, and they stayed there 432 years in slavery, and then God raised up Moses, the great liberator, delivered them out of Egypt across the Red Sea and saved them uh, miraculously. Someone greater than Moses is here. His name is David, but David is pointing to someone greater than him. Do you remember that little scene in Matthew's Gospel where after the birth of Jesus, they get word that Herod had issued a decree to kill what? Everyone under two years of age, every male. And so they fled and went where? To Egypt. And then Jesus came out of Egypt. Going into Egypt represents death. Being delivered out of Egypt and coming back to the land represents resurrection. Do you realize that we do the same thing in our own lives? We experience spiritual death as we wander away from the Lord, rebel against him, uh, lose our heart for him, lose our way, make ridiculous decisions that cast us in terrible consequences. And eventually we learn as we are brought and there's no other way out and there's no other trick to play. There's nothing else up your sleeve you can do. You're at the bottom 
and you finally decide, okay, Lord, it's going to be me and you, and you turn and return home, that's your resurrection. We experience over and over in our Christian life and sanctification spiritual death and spiritual resurrection. That's how we grow. And so David is a big, huge picture of how that happens. But here he's a representative figure of Israel. His exile is no small thing. In the previous chapter, he told Saul, Now do not let my blood fall to ground far from the presence of the Lord. David had experienced God's presence. He had experienced God's guidance outside the borders of Israel. But he wanted to die in the promised land. He was being punished for the sins of others with considerable tact. He suggested where the real blame might lie. If the Lord has incited you against me, then may he accept an offering. If, however, people have done it, may they be cursed before the Lord in chapter 26. And so back in 1 Samuel chapter 4, the Lord himself, God himself, in the Ark of the Covenant went into exile, and the Philistines carried the Ark of the Covenant away as plunder, Elah's daughter-in-law called her child Ichabod, meaning the glory of Israel has been exiled. God allowed himself to be judged for the covenant infidelity of his people, and now God allows the anointed king to go into exile because of the sins of others. A thousand years later, the ultimate Christ, David's greater son, will die exiled from God crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He will be exiled so we can come home to God. And then the third day he gloriously, triumphantly rose again. You see this pattern over and over in the Bible. That's what ties the Bible together. That's why the Old Testament uh, is in reality the New Testament concealed. And the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. You can sort of get the picture that's not original with me. You would be right. St. Augustine said that. St. Augustine was right. Now, let's dig into this story. There are three things that I want to call your attention to in the story. But here we are, and Ralph Davis, who's probably my favorite commentator on 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, said this. He said, this is a godless text. And I thought, well, what do you mean it's a God? Well, it doesn't mention God at all. Nothing in this text about God. The whole book of Esther is a book in the Old Testament. God's not mentioned once in the book of Esther. And yet in reality, he is there working out behind the scenes constantly his will. And so David has been living what I would call a high blood pressure, stress-induced lifestyle. It's the stuff that makes great movies but it takes its toll on real people. And as we arrive at the text, admittedly, the, chapter 27.1 to 28.2 does not constitute a complete story. It's sort of left hanging. Uh, at the end of 28.2, the writer leaves his readers hanging, and he deliberately chops the story off. We then have a, a slice of a story, sort of an incomplete story, yet one that for the time being stands by itself and so we consider it. Basically, if you want to break this story down, David has a plan in the first four verses. David goes to a town, verses 5 through 7. David's practice, he was a desert warlord raider. <laughs> uh, not a Las Vegas raider, but a Philistine raider. Uh, and then David's dilemma. 
David's life in this chapter becomes a huge mess. Now, what is it that drives David to go? David allows fear and doubt to control his own soul talk or talk to himself. Fear and doubt. Why? Because David had been promised he was going to be king. David had been anointed to be king, and that was years ago. And the fulfillment of God's word to him had not yet come. And so David was beginning to say, just like Abraham did, when he went into Hagar, his uh, wife's maidservant, and tried to foster a seed through her, where we got Ishmael. And now David himself, is he's, he's worn out and he's saying to himself, I don't think I'm ever going to be king. I don't think this is ever going to work out. I don't think my life is ever going to be flourishing and healthy and holy. And I bet I could hear some of your self-talk, and you've said that too. Where are the promises of God, Pastor? Where, when is God going to deliver? When is he going to give me what he's promised me? My life has been nothing but difficult and hard, not the way I expected it to go at all, and I'm angry about it, and I'm bitter about it, and I, I, I just can't trust him anymore. He's not worthy of my trust. And so you sort of turn your back, you take matters into your own hand, but what David does here when he takes matters into his own, own hand is he devolves. The more he goes away into exile, the more and more his life begins to sink until chapter 8, 28, verses 1 through 2, he is in a dilemma. He doesn't know what to do. And when we take matters into our own hands, that is often the place we end up. We don't know what to do. And so at Ziklag, uh, David at least gets his own town to live in. He's a desert raider, and he raids other desert raiders and takes the booty with him and uh, exercises the ban uh, that God had given except for keeping the goods which he would go and share with Achish and then take the rest for himself. Uh, when David is in doubt, uh, when in doubt, uh, use your mouth. And so David answered, therefore, you will know what your servant can do. That is, he had developed a reputation as quite a warrior. And quite a guy. And the story has enough tension to hold our interest, but what makes this story so fascinating and difficult is the fact that it says precisely or directly what Yahweh is doing. It does not say, excuse me, what Yahweh is doing in this episode. Doesn't even inform us of Yahweh's point of view. He offers no moral commentary on these events. He simply does not say if he thinks David is in the right or David is in the wrong. His silence is a matter that um, uh, does not necessarily mean that he approves of uh, David's course of action. Uh, one can report activity without endorsing it. As someone may testify about a robbery without approving theft. But how is David's activity here to be evaluated? Well, it can only be done as we sift the clues. On balance, I would say my interaction with this text that I am both sympathetic to David's difficulty and yet the text presents him in the wrong. I used to not be sympathetic to it till I did a bunch of stuff just like this. And so do you, so do I, so do all of us. We run from God. We know what God wants of us sometimes and we just run and we take matters into our own hands. 
And so I'm sympathetic to the hardship and the difficulty of life in this world, having a vision for your own life of what it's supposed to be. And when the vision doesn't become reality, sometimes we just run out of oomph. But on balance, I would say I'm sympathetic on the one hand and yet convinced that he's wrong. David uh, knew that Yahweh was able to keep him uh, protected from Saul. He had seen it all through 1 Samuel uh, chapter 18 through 26. But now, uh, um, though protected as he was, he's uh, lost his way and he's moved on. And the text is both sympathetic to and critical of David. But that leads me to talk about the three things in your bulletin and don't think they're all going to be as long as what I just said because they're not. Okay, I know you're worried about it. I can tell. He hadn't even hit point one. Good night. Does he know what time it is? David is quite convinced that his only real security in life rests west of the Shephelah in Philistia. He must think of more than 600 men and their families. So they settled in Gath, perhaps to the first full night's sleep he had had in months. However, the thinking uh, that led David to this move points to one's faith fainting fits. H. Ellison said, Then David said to his heart, Now I'm going to be swept away one day by the hand of Saul. I have no good here, but I must escape to the land of the Philistines. Saul shall despair of me, and searching any more for me in all the territory of Israel, I shall escape from his hand. That is, David using the word swept away meant Saul was going to dispose of him. And yet he had been promised time and again and delivered time and again by God. And... Um, you know, David is certain that he will now be swept away. I don't mean this in an attached way, as if I was saying, why didn't he read J.I. Packer's Knowing God and make the right decision? I realize it's too easy to be a spectator when reading the biblical text. Sometimes that's too much. David was under severe pressure, yet at this point he looks to Philistia rather than Yahweh as his security. You can't trust God if you're afraid and doubting his character and doubting his love for you. You can't trust somebody you doubt. You can't. Won't happen. You can't place yourself at his disposal. And so while we play armchair quarterback of David's choice, Yet in reality, I think there's some things we can learn here. David has a special niche in salvation history, but he shares the common dilemma with all of God's people, and that dilemma is covenant kingship is not in stake in my situation, but we still know the subtle danger of leaning on something else less than the everlasting arms. We were made for him. And if you go seeking your security or your identity or your life or your purpose in the world outside of trusting him as your ultimate security, you will be frustrated. You will end up hitting the wall. Because once you belong to him, he is your life. He is your security. Uh, David was in danger, he thought, of being swept away. And so David starts talking to himself to determine his action. 
And all of us propagandize our souls. That is, we constantly talk to ourselves. Now, if you do that audibly, people will look at you. When I was a little boy in first grade, there was an attorney in my hometown whose daughter was in the first grade, by the way, with me. Her name was Patty. And I didn't like Patty because I never won the contest because Patty always won it. You know, the neatest handwriting or... And our teacher had a little cardboard television. Well, it wasn't little. It was pretty big. She would get in it, invite the student who had done the best that day, and bring them up and get their paper and put a big blue ribbon on it. And I'm sitting back there fuming. I just said, I hate you, Patty. I hate you. I sat right behind her because her name was right before mine. Hated her. One day, about 8.15 in the morning, she lost her oatmeal on my desk. She turned around. And you know what I thought? Ooh, that's nasty, but she's going home. <laughs> Today, I'm going to win. And you know what? I did win. <laughs> the only time that I ever won was when Patty went home. But her father was an attorney, and he was a very good attorney. He's a very bright man. But I remember walking by him several times on the street, and he was talking out loud to himself. And gesturing, I guess he was going through cases. I don't know what he was doing. But it seemed weird. And she seemed weird because she always beat me. But, which leads me to say, David is in that process here. He's propagandizing his soul. And he's angry. And he's upset. And we need to learn how to propagandize our soul with truth. Especially about the adequacy of God. And so soul talk is something we do. But we've got to learn. You remember in the Gospels where Jesus talked to the farmer who said, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. There's a whole world and life view in that statement, the junk you tell yourself that can make a difference in your life. Actually, David himself knew how to talk to himself. Happily, sometimes others will rivet our minds on the right propaganda. In 1854, Charles Haddon Spurgeon's first year of ministry in London, listen to this, cholera struck. One family after another called Spurgeon to the bedside of a loved one, and almost daily he stood by a grave. At first, Spurgeon took this and threw himself into it to the visitation of the sick with all his youthful vigor. Soon, however, he became weary in body and sick at heart. He began to think that he was about to have a breakdown. Spurgeon, by the way, suffered with both gout and depression. He was on the great Dover Road dragging himself home from a funeral when a large broadside posted in a shoemaker's window arrested his attention. He noticed it because it didn't look like a trade announcement at all, nor was it. In the center of the large sheet in gold, bold handwriting stood the words, because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the Most High, your habitation there shall no evil befall you, neither shall any plague come near your dwelling. And that absolutely infused him with a different perspective and hope. And so Spurgeon learned in this time where his true security is. And I will tell you this. Probably the most radically insecure person in, in, in the whole world are people who know the Lord but yet walk away from him or refuse to trust him or refuse to look to him as their security. 
And that's sad, but we see it. We see it a lot. The second thing that I notice from this text is we have to learn wisdom and understanding. Uh, this is an incomplete story. It is a, quote, godless text, but it presses us to use the skills of wisdom. The book of Proverbs tells us in 14:12, there is a way that seems right to a man. And, of course, David talked himself into saying it's the right thing to do. Uh, in fact, we think a bit about David's thinking. We cannot help but understand how Philistia seemed to spell deliverance. This man is, is tired, dogged, broken. The malice of Saul's troops are enough, but the treachery and betrayal of local folks toward him. And, the, and, and it was just too much. And David and his men had wives and households, and he had to see all of that was taken care of. And so he's just stressed out. And David's scheme, it seems successful at first. It seems vindicated because Saul stopped chastening. And he seemed like he was on the right path, and he was on the right target. And his men and their families enjoyed their first sound sleep. And it looked like it was working well for him, and he enjoyed the raids, and he enjoyed his relationship with Achish, and living in Ziklag, and having uh, able to do all these things with such freedom. But Achish had become such a believer in David that he insisted on David and his men fighting with him and their troops in the united Philistine offensive against Israel. It may well be that David had already considered this dilemma. David was certainly smart enough to have asked, what if? However, he may have considered the danger so desperate that he decided it worth the risk. When I quoted Proverbs 14, 12, I only quoted half of it. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of what? Death. Death. And it looked like it was working in the beginning. And now he ends up in this dilemma, this huge dilemma. David forgot some of the other Proverbs which say, chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. And so David had run. And now he had run out. But finally, you have to see the grace in the story because there's so much grace in the story. It's unbelievably heaped up in the story. And you've got to get a grip on it. As we think about David here, what I'm saying when I'm saying that is, is this text is extremely grace, uh, graceful. And it's directing its readers to get a gr grip on Yahweh's grace. You know, I argue, argued earlier that the text seems to reflect a certain sympathy and understanding for David, yet the writer of this particular text does not hide how calculating and ruthless David was while he was a Philistine. David the raider is one thing. David the butcher is another. David seems to be practicing overkill, even in the customs of his time. 
But now you ha may have looked at this and become kind of angry with him. You may be angry at David because over the last number of chapters, you have become very pro-David. He's sort of a hero. You've been moved by the sad lot of his afflicted, uh, hunted servant who runs from Saul because Saul, in his frenzied envy, insists on bathing his hands in David's blood. And David might have won your heart over as we've looked at him week after week. And now he has disappointed you. You ever had anybody disappoint you? <laughs> no, Pastor Tim, I've never been to. Everybody's treated me perfectly my whole life. Surely you've been disappointed by people. And that's tough. You thought this person was for real. You thought they had it going on. You thought this is the kind of person I want to be a friend with. This is the kind of person I want in my life. And then up, they up and do something really bad or really stupid and you just wilt and you've lost it for him but that's where I'm trying to tell you the only hero of the Bible is Jesus and you really 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 need to believe that because as much as you love your wife or as much as you love your husband they're not Jesus they will never be Jesus as much as you love your family, as much as you love your church, as much as you love your pastor, which I hope you do and pray for me. But don't you dare think I couldn't disappoint you. I'm sure I've disappointed a lot of you here in the room by what I have done or by what I haven't done. And you become disappointed. And you're a little bit out of joint about it. At first you thought, well, this guy's for real. But, <laughs> and I'm not saying I'm not for real, but I am saying... You know what I'm saying. I'm a sinner. And so we've sort of gotten out of joint about David a little bit. And uh, do you think the writer here is trying to correct our mistake of idolizing and hero worship by showing us the Bible characters in all their sin rather than exalting them too highly? Why should you be surprised or shocked or offended? Why should you talk about betrayal? The text is saying that the chosen anointed servant is made of the same stuff as the Lord's people. Must we throw out God's kingdom because uh, not only its subjects but even its premier servants are sinners? The text will not allow us to view Saul with only contempt and save nothing but admiration for David. The text resists every attempt to make David the mirror of all virtue. It does not. Instead, we've got to get a grip on the reality of the grace of God. The Bible does not claim that God's servants have been dipped in Clorox so they will be infallibly sin-free and attractive to you. The living God does not have clean material to work with nor flawless material to work with. And don't get sentimental when you sing hymns about the potter and the clay. Remember, it's only sinful clay that the potter works with. And so we shouldn't criticize the potter because of the clay, but rather marvel that he stoops to work with such stuff. And that is the ultimate sense I get from the story here is this a story telling us that though David is in rebellion though David is running from God as it were God doesn't abandon him 
God doesn't stop being good to you. I've told you this before. There are a lot of parallels in the life of David and in the life of Jacob in the Old Testament. I think that's one of the things that attracted me to David is that God keeps on blessing him even though he's doing stupid stuff. He doesn't let him go. He doesn't write him off. He continues to show himself gracious. That's not to encourage you to do that because consequences come and they're real. But God is gracious and he stays with him. And as I think about grace, <coughs> the shorthand for grace is mercy, not merit. Grace is getting what you don't deserve and not getting what you do deserve. Karma, which a lot of us are confused about, is getting uh, what you deserve. That's what that's about. Christianity teaches that getting what you don't or what you deserve is death. Christianity teaches that getting what you don't deserve is grace. While everyone desperately needs us, grace is not about us. Grace is fundamentally a word about God. His uncoerced, initiative, pervasive, extravagant demonstrations of care and favor. Michael Horton writes, In grace, God gives nothing other than himself. Grace, then, is not a third thing or a substance mediating between God and sinners, but it is Jesus Christ in redeeming action. He is full of grace and truth. In the Christian tradition, there are many adjectives that accompany the word grace, amazing, free, scandalous, surprising, special, inexhaustible, incalculable, wondrous, mysterious, overflowing, abundant, irresistible, costly, extravagant, and there are more. My favorite is from John Calvin. He calls it gratuitous grace. By what he means, or he means by that, gratuitous is the idea that something being unwarranted or uncalled for. You know, I, I remember that phrase from both my mom and dad when I did something disobedient or stupid as a child. They would get my attention however they had to do it. They'd look in my face and say, that was uncalled for. I knew I was in trouble when I got, that was uncalled for. Because it's like high-handed, rebellious sin. Uncalled for. That's what the grace of God is in your life. And that is our only hope. That is our only hope. Because you're going to get depressed. You're going to doubt. You're going to have fear. You're going to lean on other things for security. You're going to go into your own Philistia and do your own thing. And you better hope, along with me, that our only hope is that Jesus doesn't give up on us. He is a faithful high priest who gives us, as we approach his throne of grace, grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And that we see in David's life. That we see displayed here. And so when you think about this chapter... It's just pretty simple. David takes matters into his own hands. He's worn out. He's tired. He's stressed out. He's not a young, young man, but he's, he's just hit the wall. I don't know if you've ever hit the wall where you just say, I, I don't think I can get up and put another step in front of me. And you get discouraged, and you fall into despair, and you begin to tell yourself lies to try to get out of it. You don't know they're lies. You're just desperate grabbing at anything. And he does this. But as you will see, God fulfills his word to him regardless of how David functions while he's waiting because that's the kind of God he is. And he will get all of you home who trust in him because he does what he promises.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this narrative, this story, which on the one hand, we're very sympathetic to King David. And we've all been there before where we were resenting and depressed and in darkness and confusion and doubt when what God has promised to us has not become reality and the life we're living contradicts the life we were promised, then it's easy to fall into despair and spiral down and put ourselves into a dilemma where there's no way out. But we think you're... Thank you. You are the kind of God who rescues us, even in our deepest self-made pits that we fall into. Thank you for being that way to us. Now, fathers, we continue to worship. We give as people who've tasted your grace. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.